Welcome to Asbury Pod with Amy Quinn and Joe Walsh. Today, we talk to Sancha Gray, Superintendent of Schools for the Asbury Park School District. Sancha tells us about the district's response to the COVID-19 emergency, what services the district has been providing that we may not know about, and looks ahead to the fall 20 school year. Welcome, Sancha. The matters addressed in this podcast represent my own personal views and opinions concerning issues affecting the citizens of Asbury Park in my capacity as the Deputy Mayor of the City of Asbury Park. They do not necessarily represent the official position of the city or the official position of the Asbury Park City Council as a whole. I am developing and implementing this podcast in an effort to keep citizens informed. However, this is not an official City of Asbury Park podcast and does not, and I repeat, does not represent the official position of the city or the governing body. Welcome everybody to Asbury Pod. It's June 11th. Um, we're here with Sancha Gray, the superintendent of Asbury Park Schools. Um, I've had a rough day because the city last night um, issued a resolution allowing indoor dining in violation of the governor's executive order. And that has gotten a tremendous amount of attention. Um, so figuring out that, um, but on to more important things, which is um, certainly my favorite superintendent um, of schools in Asbury Park. Sancha, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit? Yes. Hi, my name is Sancha Gray. Um, as has been shared, I'm the superintendent of schools for the Asbury Park School District, um, completing my second year uh, leading uh, as the superintendent. I started in 2014 as the director of curriculum and instruction. And then I transitioned into being the assistant superintendent. So I've been in the Asbury Park schools for a few years now, and I'm so delighted to be able to lead the district um, in its totality. And I think, you know, I want to mention one of the great things, Sancha, that you did was you 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 got a place in Asbury Park when you on yep. or around the time you became superintendent, which I think shows some, you know, real dedication to your commitment to the students of Asbury. Yeah, I'm very excited to, to be a resident of the city. Um, I've enjoyed working in the city in the capacity as a superintendent. And um, I also enjoy being a part of the fabric of the community, uh, being the president of the Greater Asbury Park Democratic Club, sitting on the Public Arts Commission, and just enjoying all that the city has to offer is really a great place to not only work, but to live. Oh, yeah. go ahead, Joe. Nope. Did you come from Carteret? Did I read that right? That is correct. Yes. Um, I am, uh, have been a Carteret. I was a Carteret resident for over 20 years. Mm -hmm. um, and prior to Carteret, I lived in the Oranges, but I am a Brooklyn native. The reason that the Carteret attracted my attention, I used to many years ago, a long time ago, more than 20 years ago, I worked at the Hess Oil Refinery in, in Port Reading. Yeah. Which was like the little tiny little back part of Carteret that no one ever knew was a town. 
or, or separate section. So, uh, well, interestingly, I my home in Carteret was uh, literally on the dividing line of Port Reading. So it is a very interesting comment that you're sharing in that most people don't have a clue where Port Reading is. Much easier to just say Carteret. You're right. Yeah, it was a weird Victorian resort town until they put an oil uh, refinery there. Yes. yes. <laughs> but anyway, Amy, I, I, side, I hijacked the, uh, the conversation. No, no, no. So, Sancho, we've been doing we've been uh, doing these kind of COVID related um, podcasts, talking to um, Garrett Garberson Jr., the OEM director, Esbury Burke Dinner Table, Kim Guadano, talking about the. Um, he's been fabulous. He's yeah. been fabulous, one hundred percent. And um, Vin Gopal talking about things that Senator Vin Gopal talking about, uh, you know, grants and loans coming down for businesses, and we we really. You know, I know how the school system is responding because I have a son in the school system. But we thought it would be, you know, it, it would be interesting to people to hear a little bit about how COVID is affecting um, the Asbury Park school system, how you've had to pivot very, very quickly um, in dealing with, you know, COVID and, um, and kind of get people a little bit up to speed on that. Yeah. So, you know, it was, we kind of heard, murmurings about this new potentially serious virus that had was impacting our our country around January um, where it really started getting a lot of attention in school districts so from a facility standpoint in beginning in January we had started to implement what we call a three-stage cleaning and um, that was more preventative in nature. We talked about the basic hygiene practices, ensuring that our students were washing their hands frequently and just encouraging the use of hand sanitizer, right? Because it was still very early on in January, um, just these conversations and just kind of not really understanding and knowing the full depth and breadth of it. But um, by March, we understood that this was something that was very serious. We started hearing a lot more uh, from the media. And then on March 17th is when we had to pivot from the brick and mortar into a remote learning situation. And so uh, that pivot caused us to quickly create learning experiences through old fashioned methods called paper and pen and we created packets of learning opportunities to send home to and for our students. I look at this uh, whole COVID experience as a opportunity because what it did is it really put a cast a spotlight on things that were not necessarily new, but they were more glaring and became more glaring and evident. One of the uh, things that I'm referring to is with, with regard to the digital inequities that our children were experiencing. And so as we kind of get just tried to put a Band-Aid over a wound initially in this quick pivot of getting packets together, that's when we began to really look at more closely, what kind of access do our children have outside of school? And so uh, we knew that we weren't able to move into a virtual learning space right away, that we were gonna have to kind of reside in the remote learning um, experience for our students. The other thing- um, And that- can I just use an example to illustrate that? Early on, the same kids were in the digital story time. 
right? As, as time progressed and as, you know, kids got access to, you know, what the school gave out and what they had, but the first couple of months in the first couple of weeks in March and April, I saw the same two or three kids on our virtual story time and knowing that the other, you know, my belief obviously was that the other kids did not have access, but I didn't know that until it glared at me mm-hmm. day after day with story time. And, and, and just so people know, my son's in the pre-K program. So, um, that, you know, they get online and do story time and, and he's an amazing teacher and, and teachers and, but yeah, that was glaring to me that I saw the same three or four kids for weeks until, until we started to see some more. Right. And those, those are, those are a part of that problemutunity problem, COVID-19 opportunity. How can we look to do things differently? So the governor's initial mandate to us was to ensure two things that we have and provide continuous instruction and that there's food security for our food insecure families. And so um, thanks to a partnership and collaboration with the city council, uh, specifically you, deputy mayor, and being a liaison for us with uh, Kim Guadano, the executive director from Fulfill Food Bank, we were able to supplement the breakfast, lunch, and snack that we provide for our students on a daily basis with food shelf-stable foods that we were able to send home to the families for over the weekend. And so we know and we understand that many of our families uh, that are Black, Brown, and Hispanic in poverty really rely on the breakfast and lunch program in the schools. Um, If you are a student that's in our after-school program, we also serve dinner. And so what what became, again, glaring is how do we continue to support our families in that way? And through the partnership that we had with, uh, we, that we continue to have with Fulfill Food Bank, not only were we able to continue to give them the daily uh, breakfast, lunch, and snack, but also over the weekend, we wanted to ensure that our families' needs were met. And then within the community, um, some community activists came together and they created the Asbury Park Dinner Table. And they have also been able to provide dinner for uh, many of the families in the city that have been impacted during this time. So it's really been a wonderful experience. Uh, If there's any beauty to be gleaned out of a pandemic, right? The beauty is that there are community partners that have worked so wonderfully and have been so collaborative with the district in ensuring that our students' food security has been addressed. Interesting thing. I mean, that shines a light on the the wider mission of public schools, in particularly in districts where a, a large number of residents live below the poverty line, right, or suffer yeah. from food insecurity. So you're not only responsible for instruction. But the, the community is reliant upon the school for a wide range of things that most people probably do not think of immediately as a primary mission of the school, right? So schools here serve a lot of vital functions for the community that are perhaps not visible uh, um, on first glance. After you look deeper into the operations of the school, you see that there's a lot of connections between the community and the school that are vital that perhaps we didn't think about before. And food insecurity is really not talked about enough. This is totally random that I read around an article yesterday. Um, about a district that increased 
food opportunities for their students and got a corresponding increase in uh, scores and testing scores. Yeah. Right? This is not um, it, this is not a casual sort of handout, right? This is integral to the integral to the uh, the, the um, success of our students, right? If, you know, if, you, if you're hungry, you cannot do well. You're not going to do well on the test, right? There's a lot of things that are going on. So this is, uh, I'm glad we, you know, we, that we talked about the connection to fulfill because that is not always the, a first thought when people think about public schools. What are schools doing? So not only are you feeding the students, you know, and teaching students, but they're also feeding them and, and creating and taking care of other, other needs. And, you know, to take it a step further, I've talked about food, quality food being an equity issue. Typically, people of color and poverty do not have access to high quality food. And so one of the things that I'm particularly proud of in the Asbury Park School District, as well as the collaboration that we have with others in the community, is that we seek to provide as much as possible, right? Um, because there's also fiscal implications around it. But as much as possible, we try to provide whole foods um, for our students and their families. Uh, so we've had opportunities during this global pandemic where we were able to give out fresh produce um, so that we can, it's, it's really about the quality of the food also that our students have access to. And that's part of that whole food security piece. And there's a justice that's around food security. And it's, it just speaks to, in a larger context, the beauty of being in the Asbury, in the city of Asbury Park, and how all of that kind of works together in tandem with our city council, with our local businesses and with the initiatives that you hear being pushed forward in the city. And Sancho, so having a four-year-old in the school district and doing virtual learning is a little challenging in, in the sense that, and, and you know I adore his teachers, um, but he, he, he doesn't sit still. He picks up the laptop and walks around the house just because that's what he does. So I'm just curious how you've seen kind of virtual learning from K to 12th grade, you know, where, where just any of your thoughts on that? Cause I only have the perspective of my son who, who, who looks forward to story time, looks forward to catching up with his teachers, looks forward to, you know, interaction with some of his classmates, but has no concept of, <laughs> what's happening, quite frankly. He doesn't, you know, he has this vague idea of there's a virus, he can't go to a playground, you know, he, he has this kind of vague idea, very, very vague idea of what's happening. He doesn't understand why he can't go back to school. So just just wondering about your perspective as from K to 12, like what you've kind of seen. So um, everything along the continuum um, that you're talking about, obviously, the older students are a lot more uh, versed in terms of what's going on. They understand it. Teachers have been unpacking that in science classes for them. But um, I have to kind of go back to, and I want to make a distinction for the audience in terms of remote learning and in terms of virtual learning, because they're not the same. Um, so the remote learning is when I talked about the packets that we sent home for the students, pen and paper. The virtual learning would be when we actually have students online and they're in a classroom, although it's virtual, they're in a virtual classroom setting. The story time that you're talking about, as well as some of the mindfulness and meditation and yoga that we've been providing to address the social and emotional needs of our students 
and their families. To be honest, uh, anytime we're able to get into the home, we want to have a holistic approach and engage all of the family members if possible. So when we're doing that uh, story time, we have been uh, pushing that out like on our social media. So through Facebook, um, maybe our YouTube channel. In some cases, our teachers have, as you shared, a classroom setting, but we know that all students can't participate in that because they don't have internet access. That's why it became a priority to uh, the school district to ensure that we provided devices for every student so that their that equity piece would be addressed. But um, as it relates to some of our students at the high school, we gave out Chromebooks right away. So our students, many of them were, oh, no, this is, I'll be able to do my essays. I can type up my work. I'll just do it on my phone. I don't need a, a phone. Uh, I don't need a device. And like within days, they figured out doing your schoolwork on your cell phone. Absolutely. Not exactly a practical way of doing things. And so we had to go back and revisit the whole conversation with, okay, guys, come in, we'll do device distribution. But then um, the challenge obviously was without the internet connectivity, because we recently acquired the internet connectivity, that also became a challenge for them. So they understood what was going on, but they weren't exactly able to communicate in such a seamless manner. Then we also saw um, opportunities where students were communicating with us in that kind of remote space, but we had to address text language and the the uh, informality around uh, how you may communicate in social media, that not being a professional setting. And so that had to now get addressed. So there were other opportunities kind of woven in because their experiences have been very casual uh, as it relates to utilizing social media and interacting on those platforms. So that also became a lesson in of itself. And so a lot of things kind of began to surface. And now we are um, at a place where we've the majority of our students have received the uh, LTE enabled devices. And one might say, but I thought school ended already. It did. <laughs> but we're piloting uh, virtual summer school. Um, and also, because we don't know what the future is going to hold, want to make sure that students have those devices in the event we may not return to the brick and mortar in the fall. I, I work for Rutgers University. I'm not a spokesman for the university. but We had similar problems when we went to remote and online that we had underestimated the number of students who needed basic access to Wi-Fi and computing systems, you know, um, and we hadn't anticipated. It's something we take for granted since, you know, our cell phones now are more powerful than the computers that powered the space shuttle, right? But <laughs> not everyone has um, easy access to high bandwidth Wi-Fi or things right. like Chromebooks. Yeah. And, you know, um, and that turned out to be like they were, well, they, the Wi-Fi, the access they had were like public spaces like libraries, uh, yes. Starbucks, which all closed. So if every, you know, even the, so the publicly available Wi-Fi spaces shut down and we were, I think, slow, given our size, um, given our size, we didn't think we did an okay job with most things, but that was, you know, hard for Rutgers to address. Yeah. And some of the free services um, only would maybe allow a download of a video. So by the time they finished a mindful moment or a yoga and meditation session, it would like bump them off. 
And so it wasn't that we uh, didn't know that our students didn't have the Wi-Fi uh, connectivity in their homes because we have um, we provide everything for our students because we are 100 percent free and reduced lunch, which means we know we are a district of students in poverty. So um, we knew that it was more how do we access that number of devices in this short period of time when everything around us, postage is delayed, uh, postal deliveries are delayed, all of these things are delayed. How do you get um, the purchases through the warehouses to make sure everything happens? And so it was really a timing issue for us. And then ultimately the challenges in terms of the number of people we could bring in to give out devices, you know, for the device distribution presented another challenge there. And would you say the majority of students now have access to Wi-Fi connect? Okay. Yes. So that's a good thing. And so as we look to the future, very excited that uh, we had on our first day where we opened up online registration for our virtual summer school, we had over a hundred registrants within a two hour period. We had an overwhelming response largely because a this is the first time we've offered online registration but guess what they now have devices to to be able to register on so we immediately received the gratification that went along with pushing the devices out and now seeing and knowing that our families are being able to use them another challenge um, that's been presented is within a subgroup of our school population our english learners And so um, providing tutorial supports for that subgroup where we're talking about students and families who may not be proficient in their first language, which is not English, and then addressing those needs in a very respectful um, yet uh, thoughtful manner. So seeking out our English learner population and then providing special individualized meetings so that they would feel um, they wouldn't feel embarrassed because there is, you know, some discomfort and disease around admitting that you're not literate. And certainly if you're not literate in your first language, that becomes even more challenging when we start talking about a second language. And so we've provided videos um, in their first languages for our families to help them navigate how to use a device, for example. Yeah, I didn't even think of that. Um, would you say, we asked uh, some people for some questions that they had. Would you say that COVID has changed education permanently? Absolutely. It's, okay. Again, I, you know, I, I, I penned an op-ed piece to talk about the digital divide and what Asbury Park Schools has done uh, with regard to that, largely around the LTE-enabled device distribution that I talked about. But um, whether we are in a brick and mortar or not, this is just a reimagining of how schools can look, how schools can function. And particularly, what does it mean for a school district if they are out for whatever reason? Once we have those devices and that capability outside of the school, it can look very different. We can talk about really enhanced features. I mean, we're looking to, in our summer school pilot, 
of the virtual summer school pilot, we're looking to engage students in a totally different way through virtual field trips, through all kinds of experiential learning opportunities, science labs. I mean, the sky's the limit. You can partic- you can interface with students all across the world and just create a more global experience for our children. So there's no way we can go backward. And that's why I use the term problemutunity. Problem, COVID-19. Opportunity, reimagine the whole landscape of education and the ex- educational experience for children. Yeah, I like the idea. Um, you know, I, I guess the first the initial move to remote and online was disorienting for not only students, but faculty and staff, you know, and I think there's various degrees of success, you know, I, um, you know, my sister's a high school teacher and they, when they went remote, you know, um, some instructors were, you know, could easily swim in the digital waters. Like, great. I've been waiting for this. Others were started throwing every kind of weird app at students that they could get their hands on it and really, uh, muddied this space. Right. But now with planning, right. There's a lot of opportunity for fall. So if, you know, if, you know, in, as it seems likely, we may not be able to return to normal schooling in the fall, but now we've had a lot of time. We had a semester of practice. Now we have time to plan. And so it's really some opportunities to see an improvement on remote and di- digital learning that is beyond just emergency, but per, you know, really moving the, 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 the practice forward a little bit. And, um, so I hate to say I'm looking forward to you know that's a wrong way of thinking about it because there's so many bad things going on. But it'd be interesting to see how this develops the longer this goes on in terms of the proficiency of, of, of staff and you know delivering delivering their um, teaching and learning remotely. Yeah. So um, I don't know. I just I don't know. I just ended there. Sorry about that. <laughs> so if you've been around children, you know, uh, especially um, Amy with your son, I can only imagine what he's able to do if he picks up an iPad without any tutorial, without any kind of manual to say step one, step two, step three. So the beauty of it is that we have, we have children who are the term that tends to be used are digital natives, right? And they've just grown up with technology. Mm-hmm. They don't have to have that step-by-step explanation. And so in some cases, when we were in the brick and mortar, they were very instrumental in helping teachers learn and navigate their way. Like it was not uncommon to hear a teacher say, like I had to ask one of my students to show me how to navigate this space and place. So there has been growing and learning on both sides um, for our staff. We continue to provide very intensive, self-directed virtual professional development and the virtual professional development basically models how to instruct in a virtual in a virtual environment, right? So um, rather than say, hey, step one, step two, step three, we've provided very authentic professional development for them that's continuing to occur where they actually navigate as a learner and then are expected to now turnkey that newer learning and present that to their students in the learning space, in a classroom environment. So I'm excited about that. That's something that if we remained in a brick and mortar, we would not necessarily have to, with the sense of urgency that we're doing it with now, engage in that type of professional development. I think, and just again, from my perspective of having a a small child, the thought of returning to school 
for me, what, what would be so difficult, whether it's in the fall or in the spring or whenever it is, you know, again, trying to keep four or five, six, seven-year-olds respecting social distancing. Like they don't, they, they don't respect it. They don't get it. They don't understand it. So, you know, when, when we have people over um, in our backyard or whatever, it, you know, it's a lengthy conversation with my son about, you can't hug Patricia Penn, right? You can't hug Yvonne Clayton. Um, and so I don't, I don't know how you deal with that ret potentially returning to school in the fall. I mean, I don't know, but I would assume with high school kids, you can kind of explain it. But with, with, you know, my age group, there is little to no explaining or keeping their hands off each other. They just, yeah. Yeah. their hands are all over each other all the time. <laughs> Oh, I thought you, we stopped by Amy's house the other day and Jensen was pretty good, he, you know, in terms of staying away. That was like days of us saying people are going to come <laughs> over on Saturday. You can't hug any of these people. And listen, a lot of my friend Jan Sparrow, who owns Words, is in her 70s. Patricia Patton, who's a long, long time a friend of mine, resident on Asbury Ave, mm -hmm. also in her 70s. You know, whether it's Yvonne or, you know, Michelle Gladden was over. Michelle's in her 50s. So, um what you saw, Joe, was hours of us ex explaining to him that if he touches and kisses and hugs like he normally did a few months ago, that there's a real risk to that now. And it's, well, it's hard to communicate that to a four-year-old. We were all spread out you know, pretty well in the backyard, but Jensen did make a point to tell me that I was sitting in his chair, but, you know, today it was okay. <laughs> Good to know. Good to know. Maybe get the hell out of his chair, Joe. Yeah, Jesus I, Christ. I, I did. But anyway, I didn't mean to, but you're right. It was a great effort for him to not hug everybody because that's his, his nature, right? Right. So, so that, I don't know how you go, but I, I don't know how you take that age range in the fall. I don't know how you deal with that in the fall, Sancha. I don't know how you deal with that age range in the fall. I imagine if you can talk to high school students, I imagine you can talk to middle school students and explain to them the potential repercussions of you know, this virus and, and um, you getting it and, and you then infecting other people. But, you know, the age range of my son, there's no, you know, other than scaring him, there's not a whole lot I can do to keep him from playing mm -hmm. tag or hugging and jumping on Miss Jamie, his teacher. Right. Right. So, no, I mean, you make a great point um, in terms of making sure that we're developmentally appropriate in our communication that we're responsible in our communication and that um, what we don't want to do is create a fear in our children around it. And the reality is just as being, just humans are, we, we're, we're touchy people. Like this is really just how we communicate. And so um, the understanding is going to be a little bit different, obviously for our youngest learners, but I, I do anticipate that some of our teenagers will find it somewhat difficult too, to uh, social, to be socially distant. Um, but that's something that we are going to continue to have to message out. And it's going to require the collective effort of not just the school officials, but also at home uh, within the community. I'm thinking this experience is bringing more to light the why around it. But I do anticipate that we're going to have to do a lot of talking about it. Uh, some of the protocols that I'm looking at, um, and again, it's still unclear. We will always be in compliance and follow the directives and the guidelines as they continue to be 
shared with us. Um, but I'm also not the type of person that's going to sit around and just wait. I have to act, plan, and prepare uh, for the unknown. So I, I am understanding that there are going to be obviously two possible scenarios. Uh, one, we're going to go back, uh, obviously in a modified kind of a way, but go back meaning to person, person, person to person interaction, or we're not, right? So those are the only two options. You're not going in in the brick and mortar or you are. And so preparing for what that looks like for me, uh, PPE devices, um, securing those, uh, the purchasing of masks and or face shields, uh, definitely going to be a reality for us in the Asbury Park schools. Um, and then we're going to have to talk through, talk to students starting at age three, what it means to have a face covering. So we've looked at some different options for our younger learners that more of like a sock kind of uh, face shield, as opposed to the elastic that goes behind the ears. Um, perhaps a face shield that goes over the mask. I mean, these are different things that we continue to look at, not firmly committed on any of them, uh, other than definitely having something to cover the nose and the mouth. But um, as we receive additional guidance, you know, we will obviously be in compliance. But like I said, I can't wait. I don't want to wait till the ninth hour and then we can't access, mm -hmm. you know, the PPE. Hand sanitizing, uh, stations in the classrooms and just more so from a place of educating and informing and less from a place of trying to create anxiety and fear because we also are not clear. Um, one of my deepest concerns is when the children are not with me, I don't know, I can't, I haven't been able to speak to what their experiences are. I'm prayerful that they're not in homes where the news is on 24 hours a day and it's creating the anxiety, but if it is, we are uh, preparing some social and emotional supports for them when we get them in on site. We continue to push those out and make those kinds of resources available through our social media because we want to make sure that along with the basic needs like food and shelter, we are addressing the next that social and emotional piece too. It's so critically important. Yeah, I was going to ask if you had any feedback from inst instructors about. Um, manifestations of fear and anxiety in the student body. Yeah, you know, absolutely. And it, and it might be hard to determine since they are remote, but um, so I'm wondering, I mean, have you heard anything back or is it still just too, too diffuse to, to get a, a finger on at the moment? Our teachers have been really wonderful. Um, they've had a lot placed on them and our parents have just been extraordinary as well. Um, I've had parents reach out to me frustrated angry, just, you know, at their wit's end and all very normal emotions for a time like this. Um, some have uh, been recently unemployed and so, or they are employed and they're underemployed and now they're having to educate their kids and explain and the news is on. So all of these things are happening and some of our, uh, our educators have been calling or providing support in lieu of having the Wi-Fi access in the home, the internet, the lack of internet connectivity means that some of our educators are actually corresponding with students via the telephone and trying to provide some mindfulness and meditation moments in that way, in that space and place. And then we also kind of, like I said, push them to our YouTube channel where even parents have been saying it's helpful 
because what they're doing is they're hearing the strategies that we're teaching our students in school. And so now they're able to also like make it a part of their repertoire at home. Amy, did you have a... Yeah, so Sandra, one of the hot topics that's been going on um, around COVID and schooling is graduations. Do you want to you want to touch a, a little bit about what Asbury's planning? I know there's a virtual graduation coming up for the high school, um, but how is that discussion and dialogue taking place for Asbury? Well, we're very delighted to know that the the ban uh, on ter- in terms of the number of participate participants has been increased to 500. So that is extraordinary because we were committed to ensuring that we had a face-to-face graduation. We just didn't necessarily know how many face-to-face graduation we were going to have when the numbers were at 25 max. Now that they're at 500, um, we're excited and delighted and have been actively planning uh, to have our face-to-face graduation July 10th at 5 p.m. Um, and for the other, and are, do you have any asks? Like, are, are you, do you, do you need anything for July 10th? Like, is, this is an opportunity certainly, um, for any asks or local businesses or residents, or what do you need to make July 10th happen? And can people who are listening to this podcast help? So we will continue to partner with our Asbury Park Police Department just to ensure, obviously, just to make them aware, but to also ensure that things are moving smoothly and that, um, you know, under the new guidance, we are able to maintain our social distancing protocols. Um, As it relates to businesses, I want to just give like a super shout out to the Stone Pony, Caroline O'Toole. It's been phenomenal and recognizing. She's amazing. Yeah, she's yeah, amazing. And recognizing our students on a marquee. Like, who doesn't want to have their name on the Stone Pony marquee, right? So she's been really wonderful and um, supporting us and acknowledging our students, putting their name on the marquee is so, so cool. Uh, those are our Dream Academy students. Those, those students graduated from Brookdale with an associate's degree from college before they graduated from Asbury Park High School. So that is amazing. And she's been just so delightful and collaborative with us, um, as well as the Chamber of Commerce. I mean, you mentioned Words Books, Bookstore. uh, So many of the businesses have just come out. Purple Glaze offered a scholarship. So much gratitude and thanks goes to Jackie Sharp and Dominic Ladaraca who also happens to be a board member. But regardless, I mean, the extra that they're doing, the AP Toy Drive, also a wonderful sponsor and donor uh, for our students um, um, from from Asbury Park High School's graduating class in terms of scholarships. So I would welcome them um, to continue to cheer us on, uh, highlight our students and their businesses. That would be great. Um, But during these times, we want to really make sure that we stay within the confines of the the number and really as much as possible, try to make up for a year that our seniors probably never expected to end that way. And so saying that we want to be able to offer as many tickets for uh, the students, families and friends to participate 
and stay within the guidelines. So once we give out uh, the tickets for the students and their families, if we have any extra and there are members of our uh, business community that have been ultra supportive, we'll be happy to create a section and space for them too. And this is for July 10th? July 10th at 5 p.m. That's a Friday. And we're thinking that the heat of the day should have subsided somewhat because it will be outside. You know, traditionally our graduation is at the Paramount and shout out to Madison Marquette, who's always been extremely, extremely supportive and collaborative with us in that effort and other efforts. I mean, they hosted a family movie night for us before we went into uh, this uh, pandemic. And they host the Black, and I have to give you and your team credit for our Black History Month celebration, which yes. is like no other. So when I speak to friends of mine who who either don't live in Esbury Park, and and I talk about the Black History Month celebration throughout the month of the Esbury Park School District, it, it is like no other. Thank right? you. It is like no other. Um, but I would be remiss if I did not bring up, not only are you the superintendent of the Asbury Park Schools during COVID, you're also the superintendent of Asbury Park Schools during a tremendous amount of civil unrest Yes, um, that is happening um, that I think, um, you know, I'd love to hear a little bit of your take on that. It, just as a council member, you know, as a council member who is just speaking for myself, although I likely am speaking for the entire council on this, completely support Black Lives Matter, um, recognize systemic racism, try to create policies that, you know, uh, you know curb it to say the least and in, in, in affordable housing, you know, I think we have the most affordable housing plan in, as, in, in New Jersey that we, you know, I think that the civil unrest that's happened um, I hope there's a light at the end of this tunnel from changing real policies that are having a negative impact on, yeah. yeah. I, yeah, I, I totally agree with you in that the light at the end of the tunnel um, is something that we're all looking forward to seeing. And um, I appreciate the tone and the tenor um, that the students have been voicing in terms of the the unrest. I mean, it, what's going on? There's a lot of pain. I still feel a lot of pain. I, I, I personally feel a lot of anger. I'm the mother of a, a Black son um, and a Black daughter. So, I mean, there is and has always been that not in the stomach, if you're a Black mother, uh, what happens to your children when they are not with you. And so I, I stand in solidarity uh, with the students and their families and the community with regard to the importance around talking about black lives and how they matter. Um, and, and the importance of unpacking that is key. So one of the things that I've been engaged in as the superintendent of schools, as the assistant superintendent, as, and as the director of curriculum instruction is looking for opportunities to embed social justice, environmental justice, uh, food equity, you name it, all kinds of systemic institutionalized racist policies and practices, but finding a way to embed them in the curriculum so that our students understand, have a voice and can articulate really what's going on 
so that they understand what needs to change. I, I, I think to some degree, um, some parroting has happened in terms of like, it just sounds like a buzzword, but I feel good knowing that our students continue to learn that learn where the systems have not met the needs of black and brown and people of color and poverty. Um, and that we continue those conversations. Um, we have used the 1619 project long before a lot of the civil unrest has come up. We've looked to the 1619 project. At, maybe describe, I don't even know what the 1619 project is. So maybe just talk about the, that. The, 16, the 1619 project is a curriculum that um, came out last year in response to the anniversary, if you will, of 400 years ago in 1619, the first 20 enslaved Africans arrived in America. And so as a result of that, there is a lot of curriculum that can be taught around that and needs to be taught. We didn't adopt it as a packaged curriculum, but what we did, and we were one of the first um, in this area to do is use it as a supplement to our curriculum. So we've had media outlets reach out to us to ask us about, wow, that's pretty cutting edge that you looked to do that. The New York Times created a whole section um, back in August of 2019 around the 1619 project. And so what we endeavor to do is tell the story, the whole story and be very inclusive in how we tell the story. And, and words matter. So we don't talk about slavery, we talk about enslaved Africans and their contribution in America and what that, and abroad and what that looks like. And so we wanted to actively participate as a school district in acknowledging the civil unrest that occurred in Asbury Park, July 4th, 1970. And so drawing and connecting the dots is where we kind of left the conversation off. Um, unfortunately, the pandemic hit because we had really started having very deep conversations as a school district to tie and, and make some connections for our students where we have come and what occurred and talked about the social movements. And so what I'm seeing now as a result of the civil unrest it's now really relevant. We thought that the Springwood Avenue Rising Project really put um, our students at the forefront of going backwards in time. And what we're seeing now is the reality of like, wow, this, this I, I get it now, right? Students are now making a connection and a parallel to, oh, is that what happened before? And is that how it happens, right? the bubbling over of all of these things ultimately led to that before. So there were a lot of questions about why did it happen? And I, I began to see uh, before school ended, I began to see students start to connect those dots. Just for those who are listening in 69, they just won the Pulitzer prize for that project yeah. in 1619. So, you know, you can, uh, Amy, all of this can be found on the New York Times website if you want to uh, dig into it. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's very interesting. Um, so just a couple of last questions we, we want to touch base with you. 
the Oh, I lost my train of thought now. Well, then okay, I lost my train of thought. Sorry. Um, one thing, one of the reasons we started to do this podcast was to get millennials, who, who none of them listen to this podcast. Um, but uh, our target audience isn't actually there. Well, two, well, two of them. I think two of them do. Julianne, uh, Julianne had to listen to it. Um, but one of the reasons that we, we did this podcast was to humanize and, um, you know, hopefully educate people on city government, right? What's the difference between coding construction, planning and zoning, and humanize our city employees. And um, as a result of COVID, we've expanded far beyond our city employees and, and onto having conversations about, you know, everything that's happening with the civil unrest and uh, COVID-19. So I say all of that to say we ask question, these three questions of every guest. And so I'm going to ask them, you, we need your favorite movie. My favorite movie? <laughs> um, actually, Malcolm X. Oh. That's a Approving movie. nods from the chef on that one. <laughs> um, favorite book? Um, selected Poems by Langston Hughes. My all-time favorite poet. Uh, I'm a refugee from the graduate school of English. So that's you. Ah. <laughs> and favorite TV show. Mm, that's a little challenging. Oh, that's funny because usually we stump people on movie, not TV show. Yeah. I'm not really a big TV show watcher. What are you watching? Like what? So to get away from the stress of the world, what, what do you, what do you put on to, to tune out a little bit? Oh my gosh. Uh, wow. I, I just kind of just sit in the room, whatever TV is on, whatever show is on <laughs> that my husband and my daughter are watching at the yeah. time. I just try to follow along with it. Oh, okay. Really. So, so it's essentially that one right there, whatever's on. Is, uh, yeah. It's, it's, right. that's, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I did like power uh, when that was on, but that's like a series, you know? Hmm. And is there anything else that you want people who are listening to this podcast to know about the Asbury Park School District? Um, I want them to know that we have very resilient students. We have students that, um, again, no one asked to be in this situation, but I am just really, I'm really proud of their accomplishments, their resilience, their perseverance. For many people during the sheltering in place, um, I think they don't realize that children in poverty and children of color in poverty, in particular black and brown and Hispanic children in poverty, did not all have the privilege to shelter in place. And I don't necessarily know that people understand that that's a concept that's a privilege. And I don't know that they see the privilege around being able to do that. And I, I say that and I want to spotlight that because when I went to Wegmans, when I went to ShopRite, when I went to Walmart, because there were limited places for us to shop, I was so appreciative that some of those students served their community during the most vulnerable time um, in the world and in the state of New Jersey. They had to still go out and serve their community out of necessity and they did it with a smile and they still managed to graduate. 
And we um, had educators that were very thoughtful about ways to use that as community service and option two offerings so that they would be able to get credit for that. I mean, those are students that really went above and beyond and educators that really went above and beyond. And that's what we call heart work. That's tied to our moral imperative in the Asbury Park School District. And our moral imperative is very simply put, to ensure that 18-year-olds are either college or career ready. And these are students that not only demonstrated that they are college or career ready uh, upon graduating, but that they have the perseverance and the fortitude to rise above these very challenging times. And that's something to me that um, is, is so, so noteworthy. You reminded me, uh, I know we were at the end here, uh, but I wanted, you, you mentioned your op-ed, which I had read, and um, I like the phrase you use, the, the invisible ones. Yes. Right. And it is, you know, I, for many years I was a chef um, or a cook uh, under a chef in the restaurant industry in um, seven to eight years of my life. And um, every restaurant in New Jersey is staffed by Latino um, workers, right? Who are largely invisible to their yes. neighbors, right? Who pass among us going to work every day. Uh, you know, and the same thing with the um, young African-American uh, men, and uh, boys and girls, really high school age who are working in, you know, shop rights and Wegmans, you know, largely unobserved, right, until they're needed. So I liked that you drew attention to that. And that's who we're serving in the Asbury Park District. Um, and that's I mean, I don't know. I just it's a phrase I wrote down. Uh, I didn't get a chance to say it. So I didn't want to leave without acknowledging that I. I appreciate that imagery because it's true because while I've been uh, lucky to have my job, I'm sitting here uh, every day by the window and I see people going to work for whom the life has not changed at all. I haven't left the house much in three months. There are other people going to work every day for whom as if it were still February. Right. Yes. And yes. Um, not appreciated and perhaps not visible enough or no. And certainly not right. paid enough. No. <laughs> yes. Not. Right. And so it has been a privilege to sit at home and, while so many people lose their job, I'm very grateful to have mine, but it is interesting to observe who still had to go to work. Yes. Sancha, thank you so much for taking the time um, and getting all of our listeners up to speed on um, the amazing work that you're doing in the Asbury Park School District in, in, in times of COVID and um, civil unrest. Um, great job. And thank you so much for coming on. Thank, Thank you, you for the invitation. Thank you for being such a great collaborator, not only as a parent, but as our deputy mayor. I mean, your actions speak volumes for um, our students, the support that you provide them, and just the out-of-the-box support that you're giving our children that would be otherwise at risk and invisible. So thank you so much. Good night, Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Thanks again, everybody. Sasha. Bye-bye.